Good morning, and thank you, and appreciate the music again. It's great, and glad you're here this morning. Appreciate everybody being here, and uh, let's see here. I think if I can hold that open right there. I forgot my candy last week. It's still there. Can you believe it? It's still there. You can fix that? Yeah. Now, I've got this uh, beautiful calendar here. It's a Hebrew... English calendar that uh, Jackie Powell sent uh, to the church, but Jack has claimed it for himself. But it's a beautiful calendar. Uh, it's got uh, the Feast of the Lord on the, on the opening page here, and then it starts with September of 2013, so we just skip on, you know, buy all that. It's got a few pictures in here. Starts with January 2014 with the Western Wall there. And it has all the all the Jewish holidays listed on it. It has um, uh, the time. I mean, right down to the time. Four, oh, like here, on uh, well, we're we're at, we're at uh, what is today? The nineteenth. So this Friday on the twenty fourth, at four twenty five p.m. in the afternoon is the time they light the Jewish Sabbath candle, and it's got the time for every Friday. It's pretty cool. And then, um, of course, it's got, you know, January 2014 in English, and then it's got it in, uh, in Hebrew as well. And then you go back here at the back, and it's got some uh, stuff back here about uh, just different words and expressions from the scriptures in Hebrew and, and, and English, so you know what it says. And some of them's transliterated. So anyway, I just thought, well, at least you'll get to see it from afar before Jack lays his hands on it because he wants to take it home real bad. So there is. That was that's beautiful. I, I probably should just, uh, maybe I'll just order some from Jackie. See if, would everybody like one? Or just kind of something cool to have? Maybe we'll get about 10 or 12 or 15 of those or something like that. So Jackie wrote a letter. She said, Brother Allen. I wrote, showed Jack this. It said it's addressed Brother Allen, but it didn't make any difference to him. He said, doesn't that down there say Jack? I said, that says Jackie, not Jack. Oh, let's see. Well, basically, she tells what all has been done this past year uh, in the distribution of the bilingual scriptures you know, Hebrew on one side, and then some language on the other. It could be English, it could be Spanish, Yiddish, German, Arabic, whatever. And they, wherever Jews are in the world, they distribute these scriptures to uh, Jewish people. And she says, however, none of these amazing opportunities would have been possible without the support and prayers of you and other like-minded and a few other like-minded people. To express my appreciation of your support, I've enclosed a complimentary Hebrew calendar, Jerusalem, City of the King, printed in Israel by the Galilee Experience, and so on. So anyway, and then at, uh, she says, thank you again for your prayers and your gracious and generous support. May the Prince of Peace bless you richly in the coming year. And then she adds a personal note down there at the bottom. Thank you for your support and prayers for Jewish people. So. Thought I would share that with you. It was very nice. Uh, I also got another card. We got a card in the mail um, from uh, Ginger uh, Ginger O'Shea. Everybody remember Ginger? 
You remember Ginger? Ginger O'Shea? She came to the conference uh, along with her daughter, Cindy, and um, she had posted a prayer request on our on our website, and so we, I prayed and told her I would, and and uh, I was and had intended to share that request with you this morning, but before I could do it, she said God answered the prayer. She was so excited and pleased and uh, delighted, and she sent a book that she had had published, uh, and I have, I have a copy of that in my briefcase. I wouldn't let Jack get to that one, and I'll take that home, and uh, and then she sent uh, an offering. Uh, portion of her tithe, she said, to use however we wanted to here at our church. So, we'll, I gave that to, I laid that on Joy's desk. Okay, and then, uh, thankfully, you know, I, I'm really blessed. I got Jerry here. He kind of covers and gets everything. I'm thinking down there, I got to remember this, got to remember this. And then Jerry goes ahead and says it. So, I mean, I'm, I'm off the hook. <laughs> So that's good. So, but next Sunday, just in case you forgot, soup <laughs> and shower. And there's real important items. And we've already got our shower item purchased uh, sitting in the bedroom just waiting to be wrapped. So we're ready to go there, Natalie, and get that. Just treat that baby right when it's here. It's a boy, right? It's a boy. Any name yet? J.E. Jensen, Jensen Fennell. Okay, man. All right. And Jenny? Jen? <laughs> I don't think, not Jenny, please. <laughs> yeah. Jen, okay. Oh, Jens, okay, with an S. Oh, that's pretty cool. I like that. Jens. All right, I like that. Jens. I'm going to get used to that before his fellow's here so I can know what, I won't get my tongue t- wrapped up, you know, that's what usually happens there. Okay, we're still in James, and we're in chapter 3. We went to a a little, well, when we were staying with Janet's brother at Christmas time, you know, she's one of these decorators, she had stuff just everywhere, and it was good, I mean, it was all like, this belongs right here. That? Yeah, that goes, goes right there. It was all right where it needed to be. So I just said, well, have you got a favorite place where you like to go to get all this stuff? You know, and she said, I do. You want to go? <laughs> just like that. So that morning, we went down to uh, Green Oak Antiques, south of Rochester. And when I was there, I picked up this little... Uh, Oh, I don't know what you call it, but it says best wishes from the past. It's like a little bulletin. And inside was all these little sayings from over a century ago. Like this one. In the tempest of life, when you need an umbrella, may yours be upheld by a handsome young fella. (laughs) Okay. Or this one. Yours to the cows give cold cream. Well, I don't think that's going to happen for a while. But then that's like, um, that that sounds like this other one. Uh, where is that? Uh, yours till the kitchen sinks. <laughs> think about that one, would you? Uh, let's see. I won't read all of these, but I, 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 here's another one. I never went to college. I never went to school. But when it comes to love, and I'm an educated fool. 
That can crack me up there. I just could, I'll tell you. Love many, trust few. Always paddle your own canoe. And then the one that I like the best, though, um, is a little note from uh, a lady named Ida McClooney in 1885. She sent it to her friend, Menno. This life is a school of education. Each day brings a new recitation. Death ends it without vacation, and then comes a strict examination. Well, that was pretty sobering. Pretty sobering. Well, anyway, so much for that one. I know Bob had a birthday coming up. I even put his on my on my calendar here. Now, who's who else? John. Well, we're going to sing. We're going to sing. We didn't sing. We haven't sang for any birthdays yet. Anybody else? January birthdays? How, Angie, you going to tell on anybody? Oh, when's your birthday, Jeff? Oh, okay. Well, he was hovered down there and hunkered down like I was wondering. Okay. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Ken, Ken, he's got to come lead this. You don't think I'm going to lead half a birthday, do you? Yeah, whoa. <laughs> Me, lead singing? Come on now. Now I can be I, I can be pushed into that, but no, you're you're more adept. Well, okay, I guess. Uh do we want them to stand? Well, no, nah, we'll let uh, them sit. Okay, we'll let they look the pretty older ones sit. <laughs> okay. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, God bless you. Happy birthday. And I think I mentioned, too, about the um, letter we got from um, the holidays and where they, I did mention that last week, didn't I, where they had printed the Azuri Bibles, 6,000 of them at seven bucks a piece. You know, that wasn't cheap. It took some money, but I talked to him Saturday and he said, yep, it's all undergoing. So I'm glad that we, again, had the privilege of participating in that. Now we just need to pray that you know, they'll, they'll get the avenues open to distribute those uh, Bibles in Azerbaijan. Okay, James chapter 3. This entire chapter is about the tongue. Oh, I wasn't exactly looking forward to this one, and yet, and yet I was. Uh, you know, these, these practical things that James deals with is, um, you know, they're just things that we need to know. And we need to implement in our life. And this one about the tongue, I don't know if it's in the middle of James for a reason, you know, but it, um, it seems very central to all that we are in what James is dealing with here and testing faith. But I want to read this chapter. I'm quite sure we won't get through it this morning because there's uh, 18 verses and uh, there's no easy stopping place to cut it in half in the middle, so I don't know for sure. Um, There's a lot that's not detailed, so we don't have to spend a lot of time on some of these verses, but let's, let's read. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, 
The same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold, also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it may def- uh, that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs? So can no fountain yield both salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Wow. I mean, that's the tongue, a world of iniquity. That seems to be the central thought in the entire passage. And he tells us here that we shouldn't be many masters or teachers. That's what the Greek word is, is a teacher. The word master probably would be understood like it was when the King James Version was written. It means like a schoolmaster. Someone who has mastered his subject and he's teaching his students. I had a little bit of opportunity when we were in the Bahamas to learn about that because we taught using the British system. And uh, I was substituting. And I was having struggles with this textbook. I could not get through that thing, and it was puzzling me. It was, it was a business math book, by the way. And, you know, I like American textbooks because they just boom, 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 boom. They lay everything out for you right down the line. Well, this one didn't. It would go give you a little bit, and all of a sudden it would jump down here, and, and I couldn't figure, how did they get there? How did they get to this place? And I'd run down to the, the expert math teacher on the school staff and say, how do you figure this out? And he'd show me. Finally, after about the third or fourth time of doing that, I said, why 
is there this gap in here? Why don't they show you how to get from here to here? Oh, he said, because it's a, it's a British textbook. And they use the master teacher approach. The master teacher is supposed to know how to get from there to there. <laughs> I wasn't a master. I didn't know. I couldn't figure it out. But once, once he showed me what it was all about, then it became a challenge. And I had to sit down and I wanted to figure out how did they get from there to there. And then all of a sudden it became fun. And I had a great time the rest of the time teaching that class. Well, masters, teachers, in this sense doesn't necessarily refer to those who have mastered their topic. Here, he's talking about those who have really not mastered the topic, and yet they've wanted to teach anyway. So what we need to remember is that in the early church, and even before the early church, before the church even came about, in synagogues, as well as in the early church, it was the habit of someone to just, you know, stand up and say, I've got a, something I want to say, you know. And the men were given opportunities to do that. And you remember when Paul came into a synagogue, they asked him at one point, you know, hey, brethren, you got something you want to say? I mean, it was just a common practice. Well, James sensing and knowing somewhere along the line that in the readers that he, these Jewish believers that he's writing to, that this had gotten out of hand and things were being taught that were not according to the gospel. And so now he's warning them. And not only does he warn them, he says, my brothers, be not. That stands at the beginning of the sentence, even in Greek. And it's there for a reason. You remember that when that happens, many times it's for an emphasis. It's emphatic. And it stands there as a strong warning or a strong admonition. Be not many teachers. Being a teacher, he says, is really only for a few. It's not for everybody. One of the reasons he gives for that, and a very big one I might add, is that knowing that we shall receive greater condemnation, or as some translate it, stricter judgment, or others, I think it's the American standard says, heavier judgment. Uh, the word is actually greater, a larger judgment. Well, if that doesn't do something to a teacher, then I don't know what it is that would bring and rein in a person who expounds on God's word and has such a powerful effect upon people. Because really what we find out in this passage is that the tongue has a lot of power, a, a lot, tremendous power. And so he goes on, really, in these first few verses to tell us just how powerful that tongue is. He says there that in many things we offend or we stumble. We saw that word back over in chapter 2 and verse 10. He said, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend or stumble or fail in one point, he is guilty of all. 
To stumble there means to have, um, to have a moral lapse, to have a failure in our duty, or, or to be, just make a mistake for which we can be blamed and ultimately then held accountable. And in many things, he said, we do that. But he says, if any man stumbles or offends not in word, the same is a, and of course that involves the tongue, the same is a perfect man. Perfect in the sense of having reached the ultimate in being a complete person, a whole person, a fully matured person. And he's able to also to bridle the whole body. Will you keep that thought in mind? Able also to bridle the whole body. Because what James does next is he brings in some, a couple of illustrations here to show us just how that is. How it is that the tongue involves the whole body. He said we put, in verse 3, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Now, that's a lot of power. And you do the same thing with a, with a ship, with a large boat. Not the kind that we've seen pictures of on the Sea of Galilee, but more the kind like you would see on the Mediterranean. Maybe the kind like Paul sailed on. You remember... Back in the book of Acts, one of the boats that he was on, he said there was 276 people aboard besides a cargo of wheat. It was a pretty sizable boat. And yet he's talking about in the midst of a storm, a fierce wind, that this little rudder is able to steer the entire ship, even make it go contrary to the way the wind is blowing, at least to some degree. He says they're turned about with a very small helm. Whithersoever the governor listeth, that is the helmsman or the pilot, the guy that guides the ship. And of course, they just had a couple oars, one or two back at the back of the boat to steer the ship with. Both of these illustrations showing us that the size of that which governs or gives direction to a much larger vessel. A bit in a horse's mouth and a rudder on a ship. In verse 5, even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. And now we have... That word matter is actually the word for forest. Behold how great a forest a little fire kindles. It doesn't take much. We've heard story after story of how a match or a cigarette or a campfire or some other small thing got out of hand and all of a sudden you, know, you had something that was out of control. And really that's kind of the thing that James is talking about with the tongue is things get out of control. It has a powerful effect. This tongue, he says, is a world of iniquity. And he says, so is the tongue 
among our members. It seems that he's implying there that, you know, it, it's a little thing, but it holds a very unique position in our body. We don't think about it a lot. We don't typically see it a lot. But it sure does affect a lot. And we can do so many things with a tongue. I don't know how many tones and inflections that human tongue is capable of making, but I know it's in the thousands in various languages, even, even within the language then. The ability to change the meaning of a word by tone of inflection and how we say things. And you know how, you know how many arguments have been made, Right? We used a word, we used a tone of inflection, we meant something by it, somebody got offended, and we say, but you said, and they said, well, I said it, but I meant this. But the tone of inflection said, well, but you really meant something else. And so the argument goes then, and then things just explode from there. Oh, look at me like you've never had that happen before. Come on. There we go. I feel better now. <laughs> I thought for a second there I was the only one that was gone through that. <laughs> well, you're looking like you said, I wonder what you're talking about, Alan. Well, James knows. James and I are in the same boat there, and I know you are too. But he says it defiles the whole body. Defiles the whole body. I don't know how that works. You know, in a, some sense, at least I do, but how it is that when we use our tongue in the manner in which James is speaking of here, that it's able to defile the whole body. And it's the same word, if you just slip back there to chapter 1, verse 27. You remember where... He said the pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, in verse 27, is to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted or undefiled from the world. That's the same word that he's using over here when he says it defiles the whole body. It's also the same word as spotted over in Jude. In verse 23, if you want to go take a look at that. So what does it do? James says it sets on fire the course of nature. And, he says, it sets on fire, it is set on fire of hell, or actually Guiana. Once that thing gets to burning, once that thing has started, once the tongue has done its devilish work, as he says later on, then it starts a work in our whole body amongst all the members of the body. So it holds a very unique position because it's able to effect 
our whole person, the inner man. And of course, I think it, he's talking even physically, that it can affect us over time, affect us physically, how we use our tongue. And so when our faith is being tested, as he's dealing with here, tested with the tongue, how we use it is manifested in what it does to us and what it does to others. He talks about the fact in verse 7 that we're able to tame all kinds of things, even sea animals. Oh, I wondered about that the other day. I thought, how in the world is, I wonder what kind of animals in the ocean that they were able to tame. Did they tame dolphins back then or whales or something? I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe, I don't know if they pinned them up or what. But he says they could do it. James was knowledgeable about it. But he said, well, this one thing I do know, he said, you can't tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil and full of deadly poison. We do two things with it. We bless God and we curse man. And you know that we would never do that in reverse, would we? (laughs) Well, some might take, take to that extreme. Cursing God on the one hand, or cursing uh, man on the one hand, and blessing God at the same time. And he said, all of this, he says, man being made in the likeness of God, or the similitude of God. Now, there's a pretty deep thought there. If you think about blessing God... And then turn around and cursing the very thing that God has made. And not only did it cursing the thing that God has made, but that which God has made in his own image. That's nigh unto cursing God himself. I think he says, uh, yeah, in the next verse, he says, Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not so to be. And you'll notice in just two verses later, he says, my brethren again. You can tell that this is a very tender subject with James. And you can tell that in appealing to them, he's putting himself down on their level. He's not setting himself up in a bully pulpit regarding the tongue. But three times in this one passage, he calls them my brothers, my brethren. Take care. How we use the tongue. A fountain cannot give forth sweet water and bitter water all at the same time. Fig trees don't don't produce olives and so on. Those very obvious things. So why would you use your tongue to praise and bless God and then turn around and speak evil of your fellow man? You know, that's pretty simple in some sense and pretty foundational in other sense. But you know what that does? This testing of our faith by the use of our tongue really is an 
in a certain sense, the ultimate proof of our maturity. Because he says, you handle this, and you show yourself to be a a perfect man, a complete man, a whole person. We know that that's the goal of faith, is it not? That is the goal that we are to aspire to. When we run a race, whether you call it running a race or warring the warfare or walking the walk or whatever else it is, the ultimate goal is to continue to rise and rise and rise to the full level of Christian maturity. Now, I don't know, I couldn't tell you how many times I've prayed, Lord, just let me live long enough to get there. I want to do that. I want to live, and if it only takes me to age, well, right now it's going to be 66 and plus, because I'm there. It's going to take a while, evidently. But I want to get there, and I want to be that, and I know you do too. And that's what James wants his readers to aspire to. They were a young church. And you might, again, I, I, I sometimes hate repeating myself, but yet on the other hand, I want to go back and do it anyway because if you put the setting in your mind of what Israel was like when the Lord Jesus came upon the scene, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the typical... American, so quote, American culture, European culture, refined, you know, respectful, self-controlled, da-da-da-da, kind of a thing. They had left the Lord Jesus Christ. They had left God. They had left his temple. They had left, they were worshiping They were doing the things that they were supposed to do by going down to the temple and offering their sacrifices and da-da-da-da, doing all the things, but without any heart. They had left the Lord, yet were going through the motions. And this, this appeal here that James makes regarding the tongue is designed to bring us back to this thing of having control being conscious and aware of how we speak, knowing the effect of our tongue upon others, but also upon ourselves so that we can reach that goal. Now, I said all that to say because this next section looks like it doesn't belong here as far as the tongue is concerned. It's all about wisdom. It's all about wisdom from above and wisdom from below. It's all about the wisdom that is earthly. And he makes the contrast between that which is from below, which he calls in verse 15, sensual and devilish or basically demonic, (laughs) governed by demons. And it's not from above. Well, you remember back in 118, he told us that as well there. 
He says every good gift in verse 17 of chapter 1, and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Every good gift comes down from above. That which comes from below. So there's two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom that the world operates on and their level. And then there's the wisdom that comes from above. And the tongue is directly connected to both of those. As a matter of fact, he said there in verse 13, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation, a good life. His works with meekness of wisdom. That's the kind of wisdom from above. It's a wisdom that has power behind it. And you've heard that kind of meekness that is described as power under control. And in essence, that's really what it is. It's having the power to live as the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to live and having the power of a Christian life, the power of the Spirit, and so on, and yet it's under control, a meek person. Whereas the world's method of wisdom is when I gain power, I'm going to put it into practice, and I'm going to use it, and I'm going to use it to gain advantage. This kind of meekness does not go out and seek to gain advantage over his fellow brother. So when you apply that to those who are desiring to be teachers within the assembly, evidently that's what was going on. Those who were rising up with some new teaching or something to say, you wanting to use it to their advantage. And he said, that's, that's not wisdom from, that's from above. Where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. Evidently, and I think the implication can be made pretty clear, that this is where these teachers were coming from. Everybody's got a word they'd like to share or an opinion they'd like to give. But James is really telling us, you know, that's, that's the, when you're in the assembly, that's not the, necessarily the place to do it. The kind of wisdom he's speaking of here in verse 17 is first pure, then peaceable and gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality. Now that word without partiality is not the same one over in chapter 2, but it is the same word over in chapter 1 and verse 6, where he said that we are to ask in faith nothing wavering. And there we saw it was the idea of nothing doubting. Well, you, you really catch the same idea, although even the idea of partiality here fits. 
It's, it's without making distinctions. And you remember that was the word, the basic foundational word that he was talking about there. It was krenna. Krenna means to make a distinction. It means if you've got a, a pile of yellow corn and blue corn, it's all mixed together, you, know, you make a distinction. Okay, yellow one's over here, blue one's over here. Yellow one's over here, blue one's over here. You're making a distinction. You're making a judgment. And that's what he's talking about here. Without partiality. Without making a distinction. And then, of course, hypocrisy means insincerity, ingenuineness. But I want to go back up to that phrase, easy to be entreated. That really means there that this kind of wisdom that is practiced in one's life means that you're not somebody who is forceful. That you're more compliant. And it goes along with with meekness. But it carries with it the idea that I don't have to have it my way. Anybody know anybody like that? It's my way or the highway. Or they're very forceful and presenting their what they would like to do. This is the way I want it done. Da 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 da. That's what that's what this this phrase, easy to be entreated, is dealing with. He's open to reason. He's willing to yield and give in and not necessarily have to have it. His way. So when you think about that, and you think about people within, of course, in the context here is within the church, within the body of believers, within the group that James is writing to, he's saying one of the characteristics of a good teacher, one who practices wisdom that's from above, is a person who is compliant, somebody willing to give in, somebody that is willing to say, I could be wrong. I may have to go back and look at that. Or I don't have to have it my way. And finally, in verse 18, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. That's a Bit of a difficult verse. But if you look back, oh, let's see here. Verse 20 of chapter 1. Look back at chapter 1. And you remember when he started off in verse 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, he said, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, you, you picture, and again, in your, in your mind, the assembly where you had a group of guys that were eager to get up and say something. He said, slow to speak, slow to wrath. 
For the wrath of man, well, that's not peace right there. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So what does that phrase mean? Simply means man's wrath, his anger, his boiling over attitude does not create righteousness. The kind of righteousness in his life that has God's stamp of approval. Over here in chapter 3, when he says the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace, then we have what the true characteristic is of what God approves of. Peacemaker. Now that can be in your home, it can be in the church, it could be in a place of work, it could be wherever, because it's talking about the kind of character that brings about or causes God to see righteousness in that person. We just left chapter 2 talking about works and faith. And a man being justified by faith or works. And James argued that a man is not justified by faith alone, but by faith and works. In other words, he is said to be a righteous person. He's gained the stamp or the approval of God because his life is characterized by these righteous acts or righteous deeds, righteous works. And he's telling us here, with respect to the tongue, he who sows in peace the fruit of righteousness is those that make peace. Wasn't it Jesus? Well, this was a, I hadn't thought of this before, but I guess I need to go back to chapter 5 and, uh, of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 9, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You know, that's another expression that simply says, blessed are the peacemakers. If you're called a son of God, that means you are in a certain position of God's approval. And to be a righteous person is an equivalent term. You're in a right position with the Lord. I know there's a lot more that probably could have been said out of that passage without a doubt. And it was a hard one to study. I'll just, say, I'll just put it that way. <laughs> because I, I look at my own tongue and I think of how many times I fail. And I look at myself as a teacher of God's word. 
and the caution and care that is due me and the stricter judgment that will be upon me. All due to how I handle the Lord's word. But not just how I handle the Lord's word, it's how I handle and deal with other people in the use of my tongue. And so we have to be really, really careful. It is a key member of our body. I think, you know, we'd probably think our brain or eyes or some other thing holds the most unique position. What would you rather be without? You know, your eyesight, your ears, your, your you know, hearing or you know, we, we've had people ask that question, and you, you say, well, which one would you rather lose? Well, how would you like to lose your tongue and lose the ability to communicate and talk? I think Jerry said it with uh, Brother Baldwin. <laughs> he said, I haven't gone, when he had that vent in, he said, I haven't gone this long in my life without talking ever. And he, I mean, he was serious. He looked up at me, and he was kind of like, you know, he'd see that his mind was wandering off. He said, I can't think of a time when I've gone this long and I haven't been able to talk. And he was sure glad to get that thing out. But, and it's nice to be able to talk. But how we talk, the way we talk, what we say, sure can affect in a very deep way a lot of people. And it gets more than skin deep. It gets right down into the soul. As a matter of fact, I should have brought that out, but he uses uh, the word soul or solical in this passage. It goes very deep to within our inner being, and we have to be careful. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we are dependent upon the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, that mercy indeed does triumph over judgment. And I pray, Father, that we would understand what it means to be full of mercy. And we would walk with that kind of wisdom, filled with mercy. Mercy that extends itself in practical ways. We'll ever praise and thank you for what you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.